Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on the programme this afternoon, I'm delighted to be joined by Ruth Jackson. Ruth is the owner of Elements Day Spa, an independent day spa based in Preston, Lancashire. Um, Ruth, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the airwaves. That's no problem. Thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Um, whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we would dive straight into that topic. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I think it's appropriate that we start there um, because it has, I'm sure you'll agree, been one of the most significant challenges of our time for business leaders and leaders within governments alike. But how has it affected you and your operations? I can imagine it has been quite a significant challenge. Um, it has, to be honest. I think a lot of it, the biggest challenge is all the uncertainty. With um, managing my team of staff and um, not sort of being able to give people clear answers as to like when we were going to be able to reopen, what things were going to be in place at that point. It was all the uncertainty was like a real issue for myself because I like to kind of know where everything's up to and be able to kind of portray that across to all my staff and my clients and obviously kind of be able to plan and work around that plan in terms of business as well. So, yeah, that's been a real, real struggle for me, to be honest. I can certainly understand where you're coming from there because leaders have come under an immense amount of pressure, haven't they, to provide a little bit of direction, inspiration and motivation during this time and key reassurance as well. And when there is a lot of sort of misinformation and clear guidelines out there, it can be quite difficult when the way forward isn't always clear as such. When you are in that position, though, and you do need almost a little bit of motivation of your own, where is it that you tend to look to for that when you're the one at the top of the tree who all the responsibility <laughs> is falling upon? Um, good question. Um, I don't really think there's anywhere particular I really look to that. I think it's just kind of reminding myself why I do what I do um, and kind of where I want to kind of take the direction with my business as well. So it just kind of, I suppose, gives me my own little kick up the backside to kind of keep keep my head in the game really I suppose and keep sort of moving forward with everything because I think at the end of the day like you say people looking to myself for direction and answers um for me to kind of go I don't know and just kind of have Mm. a little panic myself isn't going to help myself in terms of kind of giving anyone reassurance and keeping everybody else motivated and moving forward with things um so I wouldn't really say I have a very clear answer to where I look to for that one just kind of reminding myself why I do it I suppose and that just kind of keeps helped me keep my focus with it all. And having had this experience of crisis management if we call it that which has completely thrown you out of your comfort zone are there any lessons to take away from this experience that might be well a positive to take from all of this for the future? Oh um, yeah to be honest it's it completely thrown me out of my comfort zone but I suppose it's given me the chance to kind of reassess a lot of things step back and kind of go and it sounds, I know we've had a horrific year with everything that's gone on, but I always kind of think it could be worse. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we're still, we're still here, we're still one day at a time. Um, so for myself, I always take a positive of just looking at how far things have come, the progression with any situation. Um, always just try and find the positive in it, really, and keep just one step at a time and moving forward with everything. 
And when we think of the uh, the future, we've seen quite a lot of features of this lockdown period builders becoming permanent parts of the way that business operates in this country, particularly with regard to the uh, the remote connectivity side of things, remote working um, as well. There's a lot of debate over the future of the office space. Do you see some of these elements becoming a permanent fixture in the way that business works? Um, it wouldn't really work within my business. I can see how it fits into a lot of other sectors. Um, but obviously within my business, we're very much um, people like we have to be very people orientated and obviously one to one with people. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's no way that really kind of transfers to us. Um, we did obviously during lockdown sort of do things like where we do Zoom calls with clients and team meetings and that aspect. But other than the very small tasks that are able to be done in that way, it really doesn't fit that much into our sector because people need that personal experience. A lot of people come to us for well-being help um, and mm. help with mental health, whereas I find sitting behind a computer can help, but I find people like to be around people in that environment. It's much more helpful for them in those situations. And one of the reasons why I asked that question as well is because the face-to-face interaction there is essential for your line of work and there are only maybe a handful of tasks there that can essentially be done in the remote fashion. So it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach, is it? It is something that's going to have to be very carefully considered going forward. Um, And with regard to sort of handling all of these changes as well and adapting to this, how has it been just from a mental health point of view, managing that? Because you've already mentioned that you've had to step up to the plate and try and provide some direction for people. Um, Just how important has mental health been in your leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own during this time and that of others around you? Oh, absolutely massive. I think predominantly my work massively helps with people with um, mental health. That's a big reason why I even have the business um, to help people with that because I'm seeing it more and more um, that even pre-COVID, people are suffering more and more with mental health with just the general pressures of life. Um, for myself, to be honest, it's like, yes, it's been a struggle, um, but as I said previously, I have managed to just kind of keep quite focused with everything and kind of just throw myself into other projects to keep moving. Um, however, in terms of um, the business aspect, even in the time that we've been reopened, I can see already the massive effect that this year was having mm-hmm. uh, for people with mental health. Um, it has massively, massively affected a lot of people. Um, so to be honest, currently we're busier than ever just because so many more people are suffering with anxiety, with stress and just kind of trying to come to terms with everything that's going on this year, really. And that's understandable. And um, would you say that you've had to essentially adapt your own leadership style in a way just to sort of meet the demands that that's brought up as well? Um, I'd say so, yeah. So um, with the team, um, we, are, we all do work quite closely together anyway. So it's all almost just making sure with staff that everyone's kind of okay with it. Like we had um, regular Zoom meetings prior to opening um, and then we got the team together for like a distance meeting prior to opening as well. Um, just again to help manage that, go through any concerns and um, just let people know, you know, all the support that was in place. Um, we already kind of do things to help with staff wellbeing in terms of making sure they're having regular time out and regular treatments to help um, with them coping with the daily pressures anyway. Um, but yes, I'd say it is something that I've had to kind of just keep checking in with staff and um, monitoring how for them best to cope with 
their own personal strains now, but also with the strains of clients that are coming in because people do use um, the time that they're with us to kind of really help offload and to get the help that they need for their mental health. So it's just kind of helping my staff deal with all of that at the moment as well. Mm. And just going off on a slight tangent here um based on something you said earlier um you mentioned of course one of the reasons that you launched the business in the first place was in consideration of people's sort of mental well-being um what was the moment really that the penny dropped for you when you knew that sort of going into business for yourself and running your own spa was going to be the way forward um i think it's from sort of personal experiences from like friends and family around me and seeing the struggles that people have with mental health growing up but then also um, through like the first couple of years in the industry working at the spas and salons, once I started spending that time one-to-one with clients, and like I say, people do offload a lot once they're in a treatment room, um, and just sort of, it kind of as a penny drop moment was just speaking to all these different people that all these people do struggle. Like people don't always show that they're struggling with mental health or that they're struggling to cope with the pressures of just general daily life. But once you kind of one-to-one with people, it's amazing how many people truly are affected. And I just thought this is mental, absolutely mental, how mm. many people are just going around um, trying to bottle all this up all the time and not getting the help and support that they need. Um, and I've just seen like, the effects that sort of regular treatments, massage, just basically giving them that little time out away from um, work, away from home life, whatever's going on for them at that time, um, just giving them that little bit of time, like a little bit of respite to switch off from everything does make so much of a difference to people um so it was kind of that really that just made me realize the true impact that everyone's lifestyles really do have on them and just realize that there is an absolute need for people to be taking this time away and it's really more of a coping mechanism and just helping to keep people healthy and well I think you're certainly right in what you're saying there. And um, just considering that, of course, you have managed to successfully launch your own business, just for those entrepreneurial types and the younger aspiring leaders that may be tuning into uh, the program, um, what advice would you give them based upon your experience to really get them on the road to success? Um, Okay, best advice to give them. Um, Literally just keep on going. I think it's one of those, when you first start out, you think that everyone in business has a clear set out plan and everything goes to plan for them. It doesn't. Things always go wrong. There is always massive curveballs. It's like there is always, always things to have to deal and overcome with. Um, so literally go into it if it's something you're absolutely madly passionate about and just keep going. You will have massive, massive rocks in your road, but you just have to keep going with it. And it, it does all get there in the end. Um, but yeah it's not going to be an easy ride but it is well worth it if it's something you truly believe in and are passionate about sound advice indeed perseverance certainly is key and that's been proven um, over uh, this period of time as well um, through COVID-19 for sure um, just mm-hmm. before we do of course uh, wrap things up on the uh, the programme uh, this afternoon I'm confident I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that we are short of time um, I would like mm-hmm. to talk about the uh, the future because we know that over the course of the next 12 months, Ruth, that we're going to have to continue to adjust to this sort of new normal way of living and working. But during that period of time, what is it that you're really hoping for your business Elements Day Spa to achieve? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being in 12 months' time? Okay, so um, as I said previously, lockdown had given me massive chance to reflect on everything and also me seeing the huge change um, in people struggling during this time too. I'm actually in the process of opening up a couple of new um, Element Day spas. 
Um, so I'm actually branching out now. Um, I'm in the process of opening a second um, location um, in literally a couple of weeks on the 1st of October. Um, and then hoping to have another location opening um, over towards Burnley direction um, in the coming months as well. So my sort of next 12 months is just getting these new businesses up, up and off the ground um, recruiting some new team members into those and just kind of keep building, keep growing and just keep helping people really. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world with those endeavours, Ruth. And I actually think it would be wonderful at some point just to catch up and have you back on the programme at some point in the next year, just to see how things are coming along in that respect. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. I've certainly enjoyed having you join us on the programme today to share your views both on leadership and on the current climate. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And let's just keep our fingers crossed. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure, Ruth. Thank you ever so much for your time as well. I was speaking on the programme today to Ruth Jackson, owner of Elements Day Spa in Preston, Lancashire. And I'd also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to look after yourselves, stay safe, because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Next up on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth having held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since he was elevated to the Upper House of Parliament in August 2015. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. 
therefore they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment 
of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can 
have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on 
the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need 
careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, 
then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full, 
The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, 
listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.